0: You're listening to the creative pep talk podcast creative pep talk helps creative people thrive i'm your host andy j pizza you can stay up to date with creative pep talk and my creative work by following me on instagram at andy j pizza never miss out on an episode let's jump into today's episode right now Let me ask you a question. Have you ever found yourself smack dab in the middle of this Venn diagram? On one side, you've you you love creative pep talk. You have been touched by the pizza, so to speak, kind of kind of like touched by an angel. But touched, <laughs> sounds weird. But the, what I'm trying to say is, has Creative Pep Talk, the podcast, done something for you in such a way that you wanted to respond and help out and support this podcast happening and, uh, and, and, and uh, I don't know, do your part to make it continue? Have you ever found yourself in that camp, but also in the camp of wishing that uh, these words that you hear on the podcast would manifest into your everyday life month after month after month right in your face every day keeping you pepped to the max have you found yourself in the overlap between those two camps wanting to support the podcast and wanting a visual reminder of these peppy words uh, refreshed month after month if you found yourself in that place you are in luck, baby, because we just launched the Creative Pep Talk official 2018 calendar. Boo, boo, boo. Check it out. It's live. You can go to creativepeptalk.com slash shop and get a calendar for you. Any of your creative friends spread the pep all throughout the land. It helps uh, support, support this show and it'll give you each month it's a new uh, encouraging lettered explosion of peppiness uh, and you can also know what day it is so it serves a purpose too. Um, Yeah so go go get yours now. We appreciate everyone who's already ordered one. Thank you guys so much. All right let's get to the show. So we're doing this creative philosophy series and uh, in my mind Philosophy is all about, uh, you know, a philosophical school of thought is based on what does it take? What are the virtues and the values that uh, bring you to the good life, so to speak? Uh, Another way of saying it is how does one transcend kind of normal life, sadness, uh, and reach like the full potential of what a human is supposed to be? And this series on the podcast is about what does it take to reach creative transcendence to to, to live the creative good life the the life where you're thriving in your finances and your uh, in your life and you're also more and more creatively fulfilled and getting better at your creativity and uh, reaching that sweet spot uh, this creative transcendence and I just realized that when I, go about doing the podcast or when i think about um what it takes to reach that transcendence i realize that i have all these core values these philosophical virtues that i believe these patterns in uh, the great creatives lives that you can use as a framework and as a guideline uh, to reach your max potential and to reach that transcendence and i just thought why don't we just lay down a foundation of those virtues? And so each episode, we're exploring a different virtue in the creative pep talk philosophy. Very heavy. You know, I don't shy away from the, uh, the heady, uh, esoteric, uh, bold claims around this place. And that's what we're doing. And, <clears throat> and actually, this like philosophical thought this framework and this approach to uh, creativity and my creative career was birthed on the back of uh, early days in my, in my career. Uh, you know, when I first graduated college, I had a lot of beginner's luck. I had a lot of momentum. I had a lot of things like right place, right time kind of thing. Uh, where, you know, some publications picked up my school projects. I got some lucky breaks on some clients. Uh, and just generally, the first year out of college <clears throat> was kind of just like some unexpected, unwarranted in some ways, uh, 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 success and, and growth. And shortly after that, though, only a year out of school, All of that momentum nearly dried up. Well, it did. It completely dried up. And I'd reached this crazy peak and then crashed in this terrible valley, so much so that I almost gave up my creative career altogether. And uh, and it was at that bottom, in that valley, that I started to become a student of other people's creative careers. I started to study... Uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly of creative careers, and, and that's where I started this this uh, development of my own philosophy, where I started looking at these creative careers that th- th- all of these, <clears throat> when you're looking at people who uh, who have found success in any manner, it can seem like you're studying static on a TV screen. But in fact, it, it, it can feel as overwhelming when, you're, when I started reading all the interviews and studying these people and thinking about the choices they made, seeing what led to success, seeing what led to failure. At first, and I think a lot of people would assume that it's just pure static, random. And, and it feels like, like we said last episode, looking at the stars and the sky and just being overwhelmed by this random solar system of chaos. But the more that I studied and the more that I read, I started to notice little patterns, started connecting the dots, drawing lines between these stars, these seemingly random uh, static sea of stars, and created these constellations. And those constellations became the core values in my creative philosophy and, uh, and it really, it, I was first kind of mesmerized by people that had had the same story as me. The people that had had these, um, <clears throat> and even way greater than me, these crazy peaks of success. The one-hit wonders, the people that had this giant critical acclaim only to do some wild misstep next next time round and just deliver some album that was, you know, smashed creatively or the fans hated it, you know, I was really drawn to looking at these stories, these creative people, where their results were all over the map. They had, they had touched greatness at certain points and then utter ridiculous failure. A lot of them on that path ended in complete disaster, either completely giving up their creative career or worse. And, uh, and I started to notice patterns in the thinking of those people and what they were doing. And then I was also comparing those peaks and valleys uh, creatives. If you think about their creative career as like a line graph, um, and it's all up and down, up and down, eventually leading to some giant crash. That versus this other group that started to emerge, and it was harder to find this other group because they're less celebrated. They're the slow burner, slow climber uh, creatives and they don't get a lot of play in the news, in the media. Uh, We we rarely interview these people, especially early on, we don't get to see or, or catalog the journey because it's just not that interesting. Cause yeah, they might have a little bit of um, luck here and there or whatever, but generally these are the people that slowly but surely may hustle, make a little bit of progress, get another opportunity, and they build to their biggest successes later in their life. And it takes twenty to thirty years to end up uh, in any place interesting enough to to land themselves in a magazine or on TV. And uh, these people actually became infinitely more interesting to me and i realized after my own peak and valley experience that i wanted to uh become Like these people because it wasn't about the peak experience. It wasn't about being the most excellent, uh, glorified, creative to me. I just wanted to make work that I was excited about and provide for my family. And I didn't care if it came with rave, crazy success or or everybody thinking that I was uh, a creative genius. Um, I'd been burnt by trying that path. And I wanted to know what was it that, that uh, uh, what was the core uh, secret sauce, if you will, to these slow climbers? And I think I know what it is. And I call it mastery. It's the core virtue of creative mastery. Mastering your craft. And this is how I define it. The ability to deliver the goods to deliver the goods consistently, to know how to do it on command, to not only do what you do, but know how you do what you do so that you can do what you do over and over and over uh, and, and, and every time round get just a little bit better and spiral upwards. And so on today's episode, we're gonna talk about the creative virtue of mastery, why it's such a big deal, why we need to embrace this, what's happening here and why some of us don't embrace it and then how to do it and uh, that's the jam. That's what we're talking about on today's episode. Let's do it. So you might say, Andy, if it's so easy to just uh, to, to get this creative transcendence by embracing mastery, the core virtue of mastery, then why, why is everyone not doing it? Uh, if it's that simple of an idea, if that's the secret sauce, then why isn't everybody doing it? Everybody is trying to be a master, right? I mean, they're trying to master their craft. And in fact... I think nay, sir, I completely disagree with that. I actually think that there are things in our mindset that stop us from embracing mastering our craft to its full potential. And I think it comes from, it stems from this, uh, I think we're stuck as creatives in a lower level of consciousness. And and, and here's what I mean by that. I know it sounds weird. And let me just tell you, it is a little bit weird. So if you like when the podcast gets weird, buckle up your seatbelts, baby. It's about to go to strange town. If you don't like when the podcast goes strange, You probably don't listen to this podcast because it gets weird almost every single episode. Uh, So yeah, we're going to get a little bit strange, but I actually think there's some really interesting stuff uh, that that gives us some clarity around why this thing that's so obvious that we need, this mastery, this virtue, uh, why so many of us reject it and never get it to its full potential and therefore never reach creative transcendence. Um, Here's why. You know, even when I talk to people far along in their career, sometimes you're talking to them about, you know, creative practices, waxing poetic, pontificating, if you will, about the theory behind the craft of what they do. You know, I talk with a lot of people like that. Uh, I interview a lot of people. Uh, you know, I'm always in situations where I'm having these conversations. And a lot of times, like more often than not, you run into people. That are in this level of consciousness, this mindset about creative craft and mastery that resembles uh, an a, a old level of consciousness in human history. It's kind of like the early civilizations, like the, uh, the, the levels of consciousness of like the Aztecs. You know, the like don't anger the gods. Like we have to sacrifice our children to get this thing to do what it's going to do. And we don't want to talk too much about the gods for fear of being smote, so to speak. And uh, when you bring up creative craft, there's sometimes this air of, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't talk about how we do what we do. We don't understand the mysterious realm of, and, and actually, I like the mysterious realm of creativity. I think there's ways of integrating it that are really powerful and positive. But I also think we can't stay in that earlier form of human consciousness in regards to creativity because it it ends up being like, um, you know, if you think about creativity as like the weather, and you know, the creative good stuff uh, being the rain and, and the lightning and like trying to capture this inspiration, this muse, this amazing creative work, like bottling lightning. Uh, I think a lot of us are stuck in this lower level human consciousness of being rain dancers. We re- where it's com- we're pl- completely at the mercy of the muse, completely uh, our success is completely outside of our hands. And I feel like you see this all the time with like musicians who don't want to own the ability to come out with a good album after a good album after a good album. And it's, it's, it's a, it's a, in my mind, it's a, uh, it's a defense mechanism. It's a way of not owning your success. You can blame it on the audience. You can blame it on the publisher. You can blame it on the muse. You can hide behind being avant-garde or people not getting it. But can you imagine like other careers, other people that want to be known as professional and thrive uh, using the same excuses we do? I thought about a mechanic where uh, you go in... To the shop, you bring your car in, you tell them what the deal is, and uh, you come back the next day, and it's just a complete and utter disaster. It doesn't even look like a car anymore. And you're like, what the heck happened? And the guy's like, well uh, you know I, uh, I, I I don't know what this accent is Hell uh, yeah well I got a real bad case of mechanics block you know how that is I couldn't just couldn't make it happen so I decided just to go a totally different direction and you're like <laughs> what What are you talking about? Uh, Like, it doesn't even look like a car anymore. And he's like, yeah, it's it's a conceptual approach. And you're like, yeah, but you replaced the tires with fish tanks. I could have done that. And he's like, yeah, but you didn't. And, uh, and you just imagine, you know, uh, a watch repair guy. I don't know if that's what they're called Uh, using these artistic uh, excuses of why they can't deliver the goods. You go in, you bring your watch in, pick it up the next day. And you notice that it's like five or six hours ahead of its time. And it's and it's telling the time twice as fast as regular watches. And so you bring it back, and you're like, hey, what gives, man? Like, I, I just asked you to repair this watch, and it's like 10 hours into the future on double time. And he's like, hey, what can I say? I guess it's just a little he- ahead of its time, right? (laughs) Okay. Um, I uh, apologize for the dad joke, but it proves a point. If you want to be a professional, creative person, You've got to own your own success. You've got to own your own ability to deliver the goods, and that requires mastery. That requires something greater and more logical than rain dancing and hoping that the rain gods will send lightning that you can bottle and sell. And you've got to put the control more in your hands. And I think it's time that we go from that lower level of consciousness state uh, to a higher level and move into a thinking uh, thinking of creativity more like a business or science, uh, more less like a rain dancer and more like a creative weatherman. And the creative weatherman, that they don't they don't believe that they completely have the weather under control. there's a level of mystery, there's a level of uh, uh, error, and you know I think if we need to think of creativity more like a science, I actually think that at the same in the same right, we should think of science and business more of an art as an art because if you know the more you learn about science and business, the more you realize that uh, there's so much uh, flashes of intuition. There's so many, so many raw variables. Yeah, you can have a lot of good business practices, but at the end of the day, uh, it's an ebb and a flow, and a trial and error, and it's a, it's an art and a dance, both science and business. And so, if those two areas could use a little magic, a little more space for magic, I think we need to bring a balance to the force of creativity. And, uh, and give that magic, that room, we give this vast room for all the magic of creativity and inject a little bit of logic, inject a little bit of knowing the science of what are the right conditions for a creative storm so that we can capitalize on it. What are the conditions where we're going to get our best work every time? And I think that we're in an era right now where we're in transition between these two stages uh, of consciousness. And I think that if we, can, um, if we can really embrace the positive sides of the logical sides of creativity, if we can understand uh, when we're at our best— What are the how does how do our brains work in terms of how they relate to story and how they relate to color and all of the theory behind what makes good creativity that really communicates and works then I think we're going to have, uh, I, think, I honestly think that the next 100 years are going to be uh, a really, really exciting time for creative people where we embrace this other logical side of creativity and we understand how to master creativity as humans like never before. And I think about it like going into a time where um, we don't just have IQ tests, we have CQ tests. Uh, you know, neuroscientists have realized that your creative capacity is not in direct correlation with your intelligence capacity. And so what would it look like for us to embrace the, the logical side of creativity where we can uh, give kids tests? and measure their capacity for creativity at that point in their lives, assuming that it can also be developed and grow. But under, and so then we can identify the, the, the millions of Steve Jobs and Pablo Picassos that fall through the cracks of our school systems. And we can move into this um, season of time where creativity flourishes like never before. Don't you want that? Aren't you down for that? Let's do it. Next up, let's talk about how. So how do we go from creative rain dancers to creative weathermen and women? I don't know what the right phrasing there is, but I am inclusive of all uh, peoples. Uh... (laughs) But the uh, meteorologist, how do we embrace the science of creativity? Uh, and in the future, we're going to do an episode about the mystical, magical side. You know, I'm more down with that. That's the funny thing is I get all uh, crazy about the science, the business, the, the logical side of creativity only because of the way that it has positively impacted my life. I'm actually a floopy, weird, creative rain dancer at heart but I've learned to balance myself. And so we're gonna go back into the rain dancer mode, but it's got so much play at this time in our, uh, in our human history that I thought it'd be better to start with the logic before the magic, before we fall off the deep end into the weird zone, but don't worry. There's actually a state of consciousness beyond the science and empiricism uh, and rational thought called transrational thought, where you integrate the rain dancing and the weather manning a- into this awesome stew, if you will. Uh, and uh, we're going to get there. So don't, don't think I'm just writing off magic altogether, because I'm not. Um, but how do you go from being someone completely at the mercy? Where every album you make is a toy toss. A toy toss? A toy toss? Holy goodness, I'm getting deep into this. A coin toss, a 50 50 chance of being fantastic or being terrible, depending on how you've pleased the creative gods. How do you go from that to being somebody who is a student of your? Per- uh, respective craft and understanding the right conditions and the right types of practice to lead to mastery. That's what we're going to talk about. How do you become a creative weatherman? First thing you got to do is study the theory. You know, I think a lot of people would assume that I, uh, I'm not going to make any claims about how good of a public speaker, podcaster uh, I am. Uh, or, or, interviewer, I'm, uh, whatever level you think that I am, uh, just understand that 90% of that, there might be 10% raw personality, t- t- talent, whatever, just a natural inclination to do this type of stuff. Uh, but the real secret sauce of creative pep talk, the real secret sauce of any of my public speaking is studying the craft and the theory of other public speakers and podcasters. I have spent hours and hours and hours watching presentations, listening to podcasts, reading books, learning about best practices of what works in public speaking and communication. And I have infinite vast amounts of theories I could teach classes on what I think it takes to make a good presentation, to tell a compelling story, uh, to come up with analogies. You know, even analogies. Yes, my brain thinks an analogy, but the reason I go crazy into analogies every time is because of my reading and learning about the craft and realizing that that is the number one tool of communication. I learned that from somebody else and I implemented it into my own practice but it came from studying the crafts of others and even interviews. I feel like my interviews really started to get a lot better when I started listening to, there's a podcast by Jesse Thorne where he interviews interviewers. And there's stuff that people like Terry Gross and Ira Glass said about that process and and, uh, what's his name from Gimlet, Alex Bloomberg. Things that those people said about interviews, and how to make a good interview and what makes a good interview and, and what you're looking for and what questions to ask and all of that stuff infinitely changed my ability to interview. And, and, and it used to be, I feel like, when I was first starting out in that realm, it was really a a I want to say it this way again, coin toss, just because I want to revisit that because I'm strange, but a coin toss on whether it was going to be hot tape or not. It was just kind of like, well, whatever, who knows? You can't plan for it. Sometimes they're good and sometimes they're not. But in fact, once I started to learn the theory and the craft, they started to increasingly get better with a few uh, ebbs and flows and, and things that you couldn't plan for, but it was a game changer. And the same was for illustration. When I started to really dig down, when I was at my darkest point, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to master to the degree that I'm capable being an illustrator and started reading about what are the theories on what it takes to make good illustration. What is, just like this philosophy, this creative philosophy series, what does it mean to live the good life of an illustrator? What's it mean to make good illustration? That's the first step is defining what are we looking for here? That is a game changer. Uh, there's tons of great work in design, people like Dieter Rams who defined, here are the points of, that make up good design, and studying and understanding those. And so that's the first step. Go seek out the books, the interviews, and search, and look at this static sea of your industry, of your market, and start to develop theories of the patterns of what leads to consistent success in your craft. And the second thing you've got to do is you've got to practice what you've learned. And so uh, it means taking these theories and trying it out in the work, testing it, taking these hypotheses and testing them. I'm really questioning whether hypotheses is the correct plural of hypothesis, but we're, we're doing it. Uh, t- take the hypotheses that you have and test them in the work. Go out there and run experiments. Do personal projects on the back of this idea. These ideas that you came up with in the first step. And the third thing you got to do, and this is counterintuitive, but I think this is the clencher. And this is where so many people go wrong. This is why so many people stay in the lower level creative conscious as a rain dancer. Why they never transcend into the weatherman. And here's what I think it is. It's because they know that when it comes to game time, if you are thinking about the form of your shot, your shot is going to get messed up. And it's like, there are pitchers in the MLB, that sounds like the three letters that describe the baseball people, the league, yeah, Major League Baseball. There are major leaguers who have ruined their careers, literally were fired, were unable to pitch the ball any longer because they got too cerebral in their head thinking about how to pitch while they're pitching. This is a real syndrome. It's a psychological thing. It jacked me up when I first heard it. It just totally blew my mind and and scared the crap out of me. That is why so many of us refuse to think about form, refuse to learn the theory at all because we believe that if we get too dicey into the mechanics of a joke that we're going to forget how to actually get up there and do it because we've had these theories. And then we've not just tested them in our practice, we've tested them in the game. And that, I think, is a major mistake. So in your personal work, in your, in your, in your playtime, uh, or in your, uh, in your practicing Practice those theories right out in the open, consciously trying out these, these ideas you have about what it may means to make your good work. But when it comes to game time, when, you're got, when you get hired to make the work, when it comes to uh, actually showing up and uh, writing your real songs, I think you've got to leave the craft behind. Assume that all of your practice of these theories will impact your subconscious, your creative muscle memory. And at the very worst, you can bring those theories back in the editing time because you cannot write your novel with one hand with a black pen and the other, pen, other hand with a red pen and edit while you are making. And in fact, these are different parts of your brain That do the creative stuff and then do the critiquing of it. And if you're trying to fire them at the same time, you will never get into the magical flow of creativity. And so what I think you've got to do, the third thing you've got to do is really play and let the chips fall where they may. Maybe it won't be uh, this insane level peak that you're looking for. Maybe it won't even be fantastic, but all you're settling for is good. And if you will consistently learn and then consistently practice and then consistently play, you will slowly but surely climb that line graph from the bottom left corner to the top right. But when it comes time to do the real stuff, I think you've gotta set down everything you've learned, set down all your theories and philosophy, and just go into it for the love of making stuff and enjoy the present moment, get into it. It's just like everything, public speaking's like this, golfing is like this, they talk about golfers that spend hours and hours and hours with their coaches, getting the techniques down of the putt But when they're on the green in the game, they study meditation to clear their mind so it's completely empty and they can get into the present flow of the moment. And public speaking is the same. My whole goal when I get up on stage is to be in that moment and not be thinking about what I should be thinking about because that's the most sure way to self-sabotage. Now, one of the things that happens through this whole uh, spectrum is that you end up having to let go of being excellent all the time. You have to kill that part of you. You have to humble yourself in that. And you will uh, have a less glorious career, but I think you are much, much more likely to have a career at all. And we're gonna go into that in just a second. So here's where I want to leave you with this topic of mastery. There's kind of two other things that I want to talk about. Um, and like I said at the end of the last uh, little bit, the first thing I think you got to do in order to really embrace mastering your craft, I think that you have to let go of the burden of being Hailed as a creative genius. I think um, part of me that just feels this intuitively, part of me just feels this from my own personal experience uh, of of what it took for me to get on that path of mastering uh, the crafts that I'm kind of dedicated to. And I realized that in order to do that, I knew that I would have to explore a lot of things. Do a lot of practicing, get a lot of feedback, a lot of trial and error, and in the meantime, it would look messy. It would look like um, some slight missteps that would disqualify me from being uh, hailed as some kind of creative, critical, ge- critically acclaimed genius. And uh, and and I was willing to sacrifice. The kind of random possibility of being great for a more surefire possibility of being good over the long run and in the long game. And, uh, you know, I think I was really aware of this early on in my career uh, that I could stay on this kind of more ultra cool path Uh, and and try to roll the dice and hopefully strike lightning and win the lottery a few more times, Um, hopefully soon enough to feed my children. Um, Or I could get on this more humble path of just trying to be really good at the things that I'm trying to do, even if that means that they're not always explosive peak-level successes, even if that means they're not always uh, hitting the trend exactly at the right time. And uh, and I actually think that, you know, f- for me, I get really uh, down and, and, and kind of depressed about these creative heroes of mine that have really buckled under the burden of being great instead of being satisfied with being good consistently with some big wins here and there and some losses here and there. And I was just reading this interview, and it's not my place to judge, of course, but just from what I could glean and compare to my own story and try to learn something, I was reading this interview with Andre 3000 that he did with GQ lately. You know, Andre 3000 from OutKast, the Hey Ya guy, uh, a complete uh, creative mastermind, if ever there was one. And you listen to his story And how he hasn't had an album in, I don't know, 15 years, something like that. And you can just hear this person struggling under the scrutiny and under the burden of this weight that he's been donned, this creative genius and trying to live up to that. And it's caused him not to release any music for uh, 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 ages, right? And it really just made me sad because I thought, you know what, I would have taken five above, more than above average Andre 3000 albums than uh, zero or one weird, overcalculated, overcooked Andre 3000 album uh, 10 years from now. And I just see this, to me, and again, I'm not going to judge him, but for me personally, it comes from this place of ego. It comes from this place of uh, obsessing over my reputation and calculating every move. And I think if you're doing that, you are in the zone of messing with the creative gods of of creativity, (laughs) if you will. You're a rain dancer, and you're overthinking it and you're being superstitious, and you're being overly romantic, rather than giving yourself over to the pursuit of mastering a craft. And in fact, the reason I'm most obsessed with this, more than anything, is that good scientists have reason to believe that mastering a craft is the true key to joy and happiness in your life. There's that book, Flow, by a guy whose name, I've tried to understand how to pronounce and I can't. It's, I'm trying, I'm gonna figure it out, but you can go check it out on Amazon. It's called Flow, his name I think starts with an M and he, uh, he is this uh, psychologist who has studied this idea of mastering a craft. And that if you can learn how to find this pursuit of this thing that challenges you and you, you're up for the challenge because of your years of practice, if you can put in those hours and hours and become a master and enter the flow of, of this task, that you will lose yourself in it. And in that way, it's the ultimate anti-ego. That ego that says, I've got to make, I've got to be excellent, I can't make a wrong move. What if I, you know, take on the wrong role and it gets panned, or what if I, you know, that ends up locking yourself shut in your ego. And within that ego, that awareness of self and the individual, you are in anxiety. But if you can master a craft and you can consistently escape yourself, you know, they say that uh When you're in this place of flow, when you've mastered this thing uh, and you're making stuff, it requires so many different parts of your brain that your brain can't afford the energy or attention to help you remember that you exist and you actually lose yourself in the flow. And it's a meditation. And it's a release and it's an escape and it gives you a euphoria. And all the time I look back at myself 10 years ago who was trying to decide which path to take. The rain dancer or the less glamorous but more surefire weatherman. And I thank my lucky stars that I picked the weatherman because today when I'm making illustration like Nine times out of 10, I can't, I'm not going to speak to the quality of the illustration. I'm not going to say that it's great or good consistently, whatever. Someone else can decide that whoever decides to keep giving me jobs and, and what have you. But I'll tell you this, nine times out of 10 these days, I have a system, I have guidelines, I have a philosophy, I have a theory, and I have muscle memory to where almost every time I get lost in the making of that thing. And it is a meditation and it is a way of life. That brings me so much gratitude and joy. And so it's not just about your creative success. I believe that we're on this planet to take what we've been given, develop it to a place where we can create and give away these amazing gifts to other people. And... Uh, You know, I'm not immune to it, though. I'm not immune to getting all rain dancer And like I said, in the future in one of these episodes, we're going to explain how a higher level of consciousness goes to transrational, where we take our scientific side and we take our spiritual side and we mix them together. And I believe that that's a further level of human consciousness and a further level of creative consciousness. And we're going to get weird on that. Right? But even now, I can get stuck in that ego, lower level uh, vision of my creativity where I want to uh, up my reputation and be seen as a creative genius or whatever. And, you know, recently even, I, uh, I got into this place where I, I went up for an award and I didn't get it. And I was really actually pretty crushed. And I went to all the excuses, all the reasons the creative gods weren't in my favor because I don't live in Brooklyn and I live in Columbus, Ohio, or I didn't go to RISD. I didn't go to a fancy art school or this or that or whatever. I didn't chase the trends. I didn't do the blah, blah, blah. All the reasons outside of my control that I couldn't make it rain, that I couldn't persuade the gods to shine upon me. And in that moment, I started thinking about these heroes that I have. These, you know, Kamal Nanjiani, uh, uh, Mindy Kaling, Mike Birbiglia, people in my own industry like Tad Carpenter. These people that have said, look, I might not be in the right place at the right time, but I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to figure out the conditions that are likely to create some creative lightning." and be there and show up time and time again and learn the science and learn the craft and put my hand to the plow. And even if it doesn't always uh, get the award, even if it's not always celebrated by the community, I'm gonna show up time and time again with good stuff. And Christoph Neiman has this excellent talk on 99U where he talks about how if you're gonna be a creative pro, yeah, it's true. You're not in control of the weather He didn't use that analogy, that's that's my weird analogy. But he says, you're not in control of the weather. You can't bottle lightning every single time, that's true. You can't make great work consistently. There is a spiritual side, there is a weird side, there's an accidental side to the weird, freakish, great stuff that you end up making. But your job is to be able to show up and deliver the goods every single time. You should be able to dedicate yourself to making good work every time on command. And that's what it takes to be a master. And so let go of the burden of being great. Accept the blessing of being good in the pursuit of making good stuff. And when Steve Martin was asked, what does it take to break into Hollywood? This is what he said. Be so good that they can't ignore you. And I believe that the power of developing a craft and the power of being good is something that is in your control and all of the other things that are out of your control, you can figure out how to work around them if you're willing to master your craft. So... I just want to encourage you to get out of the madness of the creative rain dance, uh, to let go of the burden of making every creative decision perfectly. Guess what? Here, here, Here's the fact of the matter. The majority of you were just like me uh, a few years ago, and even now, really, uh, we have the gift of relative obscurity. Uh, There's a gift that says, most people on this planet don't care what you're doing and they're not watching that closely. And uh, even if they are, you know, I feel like the whole peaks of creative excellence and being hailed as a creative genius, I feel like, man, that stuff seems to always be the precursor to an enormous falling on your face. There's this real mob mentality that loves to raise people up only to take them down. And uh, I hope you take this episode as an encouragement to just chill out a little bit, to just uh, let go of um, this aim to be this creative genius with incredible creative integrity Give yourself some space to explore for your own sanity and for your own development of your mastery uh, of, in this pursuit to not have these giant viral peaks and, and terrible valleys and crashes, but just to slowly but surely, through trial and error, through philosophy, uh, make your way up towards the top right of that chart over a lifetime and remember it's the long game it's not about uh, you know the crazy hot action of the moment sounded weird the way I said that so I hope that this uh, this this episode gives you a little bit of a license to uh, make mistakes and, uh, and and get it wrong sometimes and not put so much pressure on you being at your peak in your career right now. Because you know, if you if you are at your peak right now, if you were experiencing that, you know it's all downhill from there. So let it happen, gradually. See, see Don't forget, if you want to support the show... You can go to creativepeptalk.com shop and get our new Creative Pep Talk calendars. They're mini calendars. They won't take up too much space on your wall. They're like six inch by six inch uh, squares and you open them up to six by 12. And uh, I am super, super pumped. It's probably my favorite product we've ever made. I feel like it's the perfect product for Creative Pep Talk. Uh, and if you love the show, if you get something from it, Think about consider dropping 15 bucks and in, in support and in getting a cool trade, getting a, a, a fancy wall calendar in Smash packed full your 2018 with Creative Pep uh month after month after month. And we also have option for wholesale up there if you want to go and buy some for your students or buy some for your team at work um, or, or, or sell them in your shop. We have an option on the shop for that as well. So go get your calendars. Thanks guys to everybody who's already bought one. This has been the most exciting uh, product launch, uh, that I think we've ever had. Um, so go check it out. And, uh, thanks to Yoni Wolf for the theme music. Uh, the, the, and the band Y for our theme music Thanks to Nate Utesh and the band Metavari For all the soundtrack, all the other tunage Dude, you're going to hear some new tunes On this podcast because Metavari has a new album out now M-E-T-A V-A-R-I You can go get the vinyl or you can go Get it on Spotify and It is great music to get into That flow and lose yourself in your Creative work if you can do that Type of creative work where you listen to music at the same time Uh, Go check it out It is um, a masterpiece Nate is a uh, uh, Just doing that good stuff Man Um, Thanks for all you do Nate Thanks to all you guys for listening And until we meet again Stay pep